0: From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: A lot of people are looking to a vaccine to help solve our pandemic problem, uh, but a vaccine alone is not enough. And in fact, a vaccine won't solve a problem, even if it's scientifically effective, if people won't get it.
0: That's Dr. Richard Pan with his outlook on the COVID-19 crisis. We'll hear more from Dr. Pan on his experience as a pediatrician and state senator, how soon is too soon for schools to reopen, and the politicization of masks and a vaccine. But first, a word from our sponsor. An MGMA membership has its luxuries, and we believe getting there is much more luxurious in an Audi. That's why MGMA has partnered with Audi to bring a little more luxury into your life. MGMA members are eligible to save $500 to $2,000 on select 2019 and 2020 models through MGMA's Audi Incentive Program. Visit mgma.com membership to become a member and save on your next Audi. So get out there and enjoy the road more comfortably. The COVID-19 crisis has quickly turned from a public health emergency to one that's become political as well. This week, we welcome a guest, Dr. Richard Pan, who just so happens to have a background in both arenas. Dr. Pan, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now, you're a pediatrician. You're also a state senator of California. I want to begin first with your role as a physician. Uh, you were telling me some things offline here. So what has your day-to-day been like with your practice? I think you were explaining to me that you had to to back away from that a little bit. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So I've been in the legislature now 10 years. Uh, I was previously at UC Davis where I was a faculty member, and uh, for 12 years, I continued in the legislature to see patients, so I continued to volunteer at a uh, community health center and at the county clinic, and uh, certainly I still wanted to continue to practice. Unfortunately, with COVID, as we've moved more to telehealth uh, and we have a full-time legislature, uh, I've had to back off for the last couple months, mainly because, um, first of all, the telehealth was a little more challenging uh, because Basically, people are doing that from home. (laughs) So my home computer's not really set up for that. And I think many of you know physicians know uh, that it's it's a little more challenging with the technology, especially if you're not doing it full time. You don't have an IT department to help you out with that.
0: Right. Yeah. Good points there. Now, one of the issues that we've had to deal with, in in addition to the actual virus, is the misinformation about it. We hear one thing one week. We hear one thing another week. We hear Different things from different people, what are you doing to help sift through all of that noise all of that misinformation so that patients, whether they uh, you know were your patients or they're the patients that are out there of your peers um, that they can get the right information they can get the information from the medical community on what's taking place rather than have it politicized or, or coming from other Other platforms.
1: Right. So there's a lot of um, mis and disinformation out there. A lot of our patients get their information from social media, and social media companies don't vet that information. In fact, many of them platform a lot of this information. So people do um, come to their doctors and ask them to say, you know, about this information, right? And we play a very important role. As trusted messengers to be able to share accurate information with our patients. One of the big challenges with COVID is that it's a brand new virus, right? Where it first showed up uh, in the beginning of the year or toward the very end of last year. And so we're learning about it. And some of the things that we thought we knew about it, which we didn't know much about back in January, February, we know a lot more and maybe different now. And so that becomes a challenge for our patients because they said, well you know, back in the beginning of the year, people were saying X, like, uh, well, you should wear masks. And now we're telling everyone, wear masks. And so that's why it's really important we continue to educate our patients, both about what they need to do, but also to say, look, things are gonna change as we learn more about this. We, I am gonna give you the best information I have at this point in time. And certainly please come back to me and ask for more information as we learn more. This is a moving target. But maintaining that trust is really important, right? So it's not just about the information; it's about the trust, and that's where all of us as doctors uh, need to continue to maintain that relationship of trust with our patients. Are,
0: are, are there steps that physicians and practices can take so they can really entrench themselves and and get back to being that that trusted voice for the patients? Again, you mentioned social media is a place where people are getting information and there is as you mentioned not only misinformation or uneducated information actually disinformation and so how do the how does the physician community the healthcare community kind of wrestle that space back so they can be that trusted space because that's if people are so confused about what uh, the information is about this novel virus uh, Where do they go and and how do we lead them back to that uh, healthcare community?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question. And it is challenging because unfortunately the messaging that's coming out from a variety of different sources and unfortunately from our uh, political or government leadership has been inconsistent and confusing. I think when you listen carefully to the public health leaders, whether we're talking about the federal government or state, it has been fairly consistent, obviously evolving with our knowledge, but has been fairly consistent. And I think what we need to do is, first of all, as professionals ourselves, sometimes it's hard for us to keep track of it, right? So we we need to sift through some of that. We need to identify who are the trusted people, the public health experts, our professional societies, credible uh, organizations that we should be listening to, guiding our patients to that as well. And then reinforcing it because we're the ones with the relationships with our patients. So that's the part where, um, uh, people are going to say, well, I heard this from this place and I heard that from that place. What doc, what should I do? And when they ask that question, you know, that they're looking to for guidance. And so that's where, um, we have a role in, uh, educating and helping our patients sift through uh, all the stuff that they're hearing.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the big issues right now that's come up is school reopenings. Um, I've got a daughter that's in high school. Uh, I've filled out two surveys in the district to, you know, help shape, you know, is it in person? Is it virtual? Uh, right. You know, all a lot of other questions about technology and what's my internet connection like and a lot of things like that. Uh, you're a pediatrician. Um, so you're dealing with children. Um, what's the information that we need to know? What's the best information you could tell to our listeners here who work at uh, medical practices on what kind of advice they should be giving their um, their patients uh, as far as going back to school?
1: So, uh... I'm glad you brought this up because I'm a father. I have two school-age children. Actually, one of them is starting school today, uh, virtually. Um, of course, I'm also a pediatrician, so I deal with families and their kids. And then I'm also a state center elected official, who people turn to and say, oh, okay, so what should be the policies about opening up schools? And, and fundamentally, I would say is that until we get the number of cases in our community down uh, until we can achieve containment of this pandemic, it's really hard to open schools and keep them open, All right? So you hear stories about schools being open and then literally within a week they close down again because there's too many cases, right? Uh, So opening schools is really a combination of being sure that we get the number of cases down enough so that there isn't gonna be transmission within the school combined with people's confidence in that so that they're not afraid to send their kids to school or the teachers and staff are not afraid to be at the school and teach and do the other things that need to happen. And so our first task is getting everyone to work together to slow this disease down. That means wearing a mask, washing your hands, keeping your physical distance, trying not to interact with too many people if you can avoid it, right? And we all need to work together on that, so we can get our case numbers down. Otherwise, it really we can't reopen those schools. It just people just won't be coming to the schools. People won't be teaching at the schools because people won't feel safe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were talking about wearing a mask. I was just listening to a, a podcast this morning. It's one of the news uh, feeds that that I listen to daily. I think it was either NPR or. Uh... New York Times, I can't remember which one, but they were talking about all masks are not made alike. And so what advice do you give on the mask? Is there a, at least a, uh, a standard of mask that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be necessarily health grade, uh, healthcare grade, but what, what level of masks should a person be wearing right now?
1: Well, first of all, we need people to wear masks. Now, we can talk about some masks are more effective than others, but first of all, we have a social norm that you need to wear a mask, okay? We haven't gotten there yet. That's really important, okay? Now we can start talking about what kind of masks. You know, we don't want people using medical grade masks because we still have a shortage of PPE. We don't want to have that competition. Although we should be focusing as a nation on increasing our supply of these kind of masks. So we don't have to have this kind of competition. At the same time, uh, there are various facial coverings, uh, cloth facial coverings people can wear, which reduces the chance of spreading this disease. And this is what we're talking about. We're not going to eliminate it with a mask, but what we're going to do is by decreasing the transmission, slowing the spread of the virus, then the case numbers will slowly start coming down. And the mask alone is not enough. Certainly, it's very helpful, and the data shows that. So we need people to wear masks, wash their hands, keep their physical distance, all those in combination. So it's all about graded risk, right? So if you add this and that, so you wear the mask and you keep the social distance, you avoid social gatherings, that's how you reduce the transmission rate low enough. And if we have enough people doing it, like almost everybody, then we will get the case numbers down. We can reopen our businesses, people can go back to work, and our kids can go back to school.
0: Mm hmm where are you getting your information? You're a pediatrician, are you talking to peers? Are you uh, combing through CDC information? I know this is a lot of, as you had mentioned earlier, a lot of the information is changing as we learn more and more about this virus, but where are you keeping up to date on a daily basis?
1: Well, certainly I look at uh, CDC information and I f- feel it's a shame that uh, the CDC has been silenced. Uh, they need to be able to talk directly to the press and get the word out directly. Uh, certainly our state and local health departments as well. Uh, nearly I have a little more access as a elected official, but frankly, you know, they put out a lot of information. I also turn to our professional societies: So as a pediatrician, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, Uh, they put out information as well. And I would also point out that as a, in terms of for physicians in practice, what we want to do is look to people who can synthesize information. So there's lots of stuff if you follow Twitter or social media, and you do see scientists and epidemiologists putting out preprints or even press releases about things. And it can be a lot of noise, and it can be rather confusing. Um, I think as a person who's looking at the policy, but also for physicians who are in practice, let's look at the sort of trusted data gap aggregators. Because actually when you look at that, the messages are pretty straightforward and clear, right? So when I say wear a mask, you asked about different types of masks, and we can go into the research people have done about different types of masks, but the first step is wear a mask. And yes, some masks are better than others, but we don't have to get into all the details right now. Maybe there will be more consistent uh, recommendation about what kind of mask to wear, but right now, let's just get everyone to wear a mask, and some will be better than others, but together collectively that'll reduce transmission, and we'll make progress
0: We're going to get into vaccines here in a minute, but I want to stay with the mask for just a minute yes. more because it's mask in the have been stigmatized in a way that vaccines have been stigmatized. Mm-hmm. What's the psychology behind that- why why symbolize it, stigmatize it uh you know put negative connotations about it whereas it can help save lives.
1: So unfortunately what has happened in our rather hyper-partisan era uh, and I think unfortunately social media has a role to play in this as well combined with unfortunately messaging not just messaging but action so it's not just words it's also actions uh, where basically mask wearing has been politicized and tribalized right So wearing a mask isn't about public health for too many people, it's about identity, right? I don't wear a mask because I am a, you know, a supporter of someone or I have a particular political affiliation. Instead of saying that this is about a public health measure, this is not a political statement. And it's unfortunate that many of the things that are being recommended related to uh, controlling this pandemic has been politicized. One of the things that I have uh, said on numerous occasions is that with this pandemic, one of the unfortunate things that has happened is, is that uh, we're not seeing public health people leading off the press conferences. We're seeing politicians, right? Poli- and, and I'm, I'm an elected official, so that makes me a politician, right? Even though I have a you know health background. Uh, it should be our public health leaders who are opening up the press conferences and telling people, what they need to do in order to control this pandemic, and then followed by the elected officials, the politicians who say, as an elected official, as your governor, as your president, as your whatever position, these are the policy things I am pushing forward so that we can achieve the goals that the public health people have set out. Uh, We need to have public health much more in the forefront. The other thing I should just point out though is is that unfortunately, uh, because of politicization, our public health officials have also now become political targets. So you hire them for their expertise and their knowledge, but now they're political targets. So we have public health officers who've resigned or been fired because they've made sound public health recommendations. And that is damaging to our country and that's damaging to that community.
0: Yeah, and you're an elected official, so let's get into that. Um, you're a state senator in California. You're the chair of the Senate Committee on Health there. Right. Talk about that. What has your role been uh, during this lockdown, During the as the pandemic has is, is really swept through the globe, swept through America? Where have you been focusing your attention?
1: Well, I've been focusing my attention on supporting our public health leaders and uh, trying to provide them with the resources that they need to tackle this pandemic. Certainly we have a lot of things that are stemming from this pandemic that need also need to be addressed, right? People have lost their jobs and we need to get them unemployment benefits. People have lost their incomes, they can't pay their rent or their mortgage, right? Businesses are closed because it's not safe for them to open which then of course causes now the loss of that business, but the people work there. Our kids aren't going to school, right? So they're having to do distance learning. We have have people suffering, but the root of that suffering right now is the pandemic. And the sooner we get control over the virus, the earlier we can address those other issues. So I'm not saying that we ignore those other issues. We need to address those we need to find housing for people, we need to find, you know, get people working again, but that will only happen when we control this virus. So our first priority must be to get control over this virus, increase our testing capacity, build up our contact tracing capacity, have places people can isolate if they get infected, and we need to be sure our public health departments, which have been underfunded for years, have the capacity to deal with this pandemic so we can restore our economy and uh, keep people safe.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned it earlier: vaccines, and that's one of the issues that's on people's minds. Um, I believe Russia released information that they had a vaccine uh, just yesterday, so we'll wait to see it. And I'm not sure that that would have gone through all the protocols at this point, no. but we can get <laughs> into that a little bit later. But I, what I want to ask you about is an article that you wrote. You co-wrote it with Dr. Bill Frist. He's a yes. former Republican Senate majority Leader. Also, Max Bronstein, he's the founder of the Journal of Science Policy and Governance. Uh, You guys published this article in Stat News. The article is titled, Science Alone Cannot Beat the Pandemic. We also need outreach about a COVID-19 vaccine. So talk about that. Talk about that article. Talk about what you guys were looking at as you crafted it.
1: So a lot of people are looking to a vaccine to help solve our pandemic problem, uh, but a vaccine alone is not enough and in fact, a vaccine won't solve a problem even if it's scientifically effective if people won't get it right so unfortunately, even without a vaccine right now, so we have vaccine candidates uh, that are being tested, but even without a vaccine, we have people out there who are undermining confidence in any future vaccine. In fact, polls have shown, uh, unfortunately, uh, a minority but still a sizable percentage of people have expressed that they probably wouldn't get the vaccine if it came out. And a vaccine works in two ways, right? So, so first, of course, the person who receives the vaccine has a certain level of protection from the vaccine. We don't know what it will be because that's what we'll find out when we test the vaccine. But the other part, about any vaccine is is that you need to have enough people to get the vaccine so you can slow the spread, the what we call herd immunity, or I like to call community immunity, that shield that happens when we have enough people who have immunity to that virus. And if we're gonna have a large percentage of people, even though it's a minority, who refuse the vaccine, then we're not gonna be able to contain the spread of this virus. And so what we wrote about is the need to work on communications now on vaccine safety and building people's confidence that, first of all, no vaccine will be approved unless it's safe, right? We're not going to do what Russia did, which, by the way, is more of a press release, (laughs) okay? There's no data that went with it. They basically said, we have a vaccine and we're going to produce lots of it and give it to lots of people. They didn't provide data, right? That's not what we're going to do in the United States, right? We're going to be sure we have a safe vaccine. We're not going to mass vaccinate people uh, with a vaccine that's not been tested for safety, right? Um, We need people to know that. Uh, We also need to be sure that we have a vaccine that's gonna be, uh, that works. And when that vaccine comes out, in order for us to make that vaccine effective, people have to be ready to uh, say yes to the vaccine because they are confident in it. And so that's something that doctors should be talking to their patients about. Uh, that, you know what, they're working on a vaccine. Uh, we're still collecting information on it. When it comes out, I hope we can have a conversation about any questions you have about that. You know, uh, But I want you to know that I won't recommend a vaccine to you unless I've seen and I've heard that it's safe and it works and it's good for you. So as your doctor, I want you to know that I'm available when a vaccine is coming out to have a conversation about it, and I'm not going to recommend to you a vaccine until I, as your doctor, have felt that it is safe and effective, and you can trust that when I recommend it, that that's something you should go ahead and get.
0: Yeah. Based on your knowledge of vaccines and the information that you have, what's a realistic timeline then? for a safe vaccine to be available to the American public?
1: Well, we have to be able to do the stage three trials. So I would argue that um, it's probably hard to say that we would have a vaccine ready for public distribution in terms of approval until probably the summer of next year at the earliest, assuming everything goes perfectly right. Right, And so we will find out things in the stage three trials that may make us have to spend more time. And I would point out that, for example, uh, there are some vaccines uh, that are undergoing stage three trials right now. It is now August. Uh, If we approve the vaccine in November, all we could say for a vaccine that's being tested in August or July that we only know it works for about five months, right? Because it's only been around for five months and that uh, we only know its safety profile for that period of time as well now most vaccine problems do tend to show up shortly after the vaccine was given so in that sense the safety is perhaps going to be less of an issue by that point in time but just think about those timelines right and uh and then you still need to get enough people for your stage three and how many did you do so I think again realistically we're not going about to get a vaccine that's been thoroughly vetted for pu- general public use. It's possible that we could have one approved for let's say healthcare providers because it's fairly narrow and that will help us collect some more data to know that, you know, in the general public it's going to be efficacious, but for the general public I would be surprised that we would have enough data to thoroughly vet the vaccine. Uh, certainly uh, before the beginning of next year and probably not till mid next year in terms of um, approval. And that would be if everything goes correctly.
0: Okay. Now you've been a proponent of vaccines uh, throughout your medical career. Um, And just about a year ago, you had a frightening experience. You were assaulted by an anti-vaccine person. What, what happened? What Walk us through that. Tell us about that.
1: So I authored a bill uh, last year to have public health oversight over the medical exemptions for vaccines, because unfortunately, we found that there was a small handful of doctors who were monetizing their license by writing medical exemptions to vaccines that were not based in science. Uh, they were essentially selling them. And uh, so we wanted public health oversight to stop that. And one of the main reasons was is that there was actually a decline in vaccination rates, or I should say a rise in medical exemptions leading to a decline in vaccination rates in particular schools. Some with vaccination rates uh, or medical exemption rates as high as 50%. Now, you can imagine a school where 50% of all the students, and we're not talking about schools specialized in kids with chronic disease, with a 50% medical exemption rate. That's not realistic. At the same time, I know it seems like it's forever, Last year, we had the most number of measles cases since 1992, right? I mean, it's, uh, we were having a lot of measles cases in the U.S., and that's, again, due to low vaccination rates. So what happened is, is that, unfortunately, the opponents, not having science on their side, engaged in uh, fairly violent rhetoric. They held rallies in the Capitol uh, with pictures of my bloodied face as being, you know, on display. They would wear T-shirts with that image as well, and they used very violent rhetoric against people who support the vaccine, and including myself, and not surprisingly, it incited two, at least two acts of violence. One is, is that I was assaulted on the street uh, by a, leader of the, a local leader of the anti-vaccine movement, uh, and then uh, also another person who was opposed to vaccines threw blood onto the Senate floor while we were in session. Uh, seemed like they were trying to aim at me, but they really splattered and hit all my colleagues around me. And that's not how we should make policy. And unfortunately, we've seen the same tactics that they use, this is pre-COVID, in terms of threats and bullying. And we've also can, you know, other doctors have had this happen to them. They've had their reputations downgraded on online sites and so forth. And uh, even had to have police into practices because of threats. They've taken these tactics and these very same people are now actually opposing efforts to try to control the coronavirus. So uh, they are against masks, they're against contact tracing, they're of course against any vaccine in the future. They apparently, uh, they are not supporting any effort to contain this disease. In fact, one of them actually on on his broadcast show that he does online said that anyone who dies of COVID, it's their own fault, they made bad life choices. And on top of that, this disease is as mild as a cold, and everyone should get it. We should do everything we can to spread the disease in our communities. And so that's what we're up against. And it's so important for doctors to speak out, to support people who've been, uh, who are being threatened and bullied, um, to call on social media to, uh, to not platform this kind of violent rhetoric, this kind of disinformation, because it is harming and even killing Americans.
0: Yeah, well... Dr. Pan, I want want to thank you for sharing that story. I mean, that is a, uh, it's frightening. It's it's really powerful, what's taking place here. And I want to thank you for the work you're doing. And I want to thank you for being on the podcast today uh, and sharing this information with us.
1: Well, thank you so very much for having me here today. Really appreciate it.
0: That's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to Audi for sponsoring this week's show. To learn more about the MGMA Audi Incentive Program, visit mgma.com slash membership slash Audi. Also, thanks to our guest, Dr. Richard Pan. To hear from other healthcare leaders navigating the COVID-19 crisis, be sure to register for MGMA's virtual Medical Practice Excellence Conference at mgma.com slash mpec. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening.